Hi, Jonathan Williams back again at the Bricks and Mortar podcast. If you've not listened to the show before, Bricks and Mortar podcast, well, that's all about property. If you've got an interest in buying, selling, renting, or investing in property, then this is the podcast for you. We're right smack bang in that dead period between Christmas and New Year. I've been lucky enough that I've been off since Christmas Eve and I'm not having to go back to work until the 4th of January. And there's that period of time where you start thinking towards resolutions, goals, what you're going to achieve in the coming year. And we'll talk a wee bit about that at the end of, of this week's podcast. As I say, we've had Christmas and we've opened up all the presents we're now starting to look downwards at the scales and thinking, holy moly, um, I can't believe I've put on that much weight over the Christmas period. Uh, thankfully, I've put myself down for four half Ironman that I'm going to be competing in next year. We've got the first one in May, then there's one in June, uh, July, and then there's a break in August and then back in September. So that's what I'm going to try and do next year half Ironman, well that's a 1.2 mile swim, it's a 56 mile, 57 I think, mile cycle and then you jump off your bike and you run a half marathon. So uh, really going to have to start thinking seriously about trying to get some training in for that if I'm not going to end up dying. I've bought myself a bike. Not the bike I'm going to do the half Ironman in, but uh, the bike that I tend, well, I will do the commute from the house into work. The old jalopy that I got from my sister gave up the ghost, um, and I have to say that's wholly down to myself. I ended up getting a puncture on it just before Christmas, thought I'd changed it, and changed it uh, fine, blew the tyre up, everything fine, but you know what, when you're changing a wheel, you know what you should really do is tighten the nuts so that the wheel doesn't fall off. And that's what happened. The wheel fell off. I hadn't realised that the wheel had fallen off and then ended up somehow crunching the derailleur against the back wheel, taking out a couple of spokes in the back wheel and absolutely knackering the derailleur. So I put myself on to Gumtree, stalked a guy on Gumtree for about three or four days, watched to see if the bike was moving. He wanted 110 quid for it. It was a Claude Butler. It looked decent. It had um, got mug guards, uh, 18 speeds. Uh, he was throwing in a helmet. He was throwing in other bits and pieces, panniers on the back. Just ticked a lot of boxes. And he was only living just down the road. So I went down and really had no intention in paying 110. I thought, well, listen, if I can give him 100 quid, then that'll be fine. I had no idea what the, what the bike was worth. And it was quite interesting because I've been doing, uh, as you'll see if you follow the blogs on the Bricks and Mortar podcast, that's www.thebricksandmortarpodcast.co.uk, you'll see that I'm doing a three-part series on negotiating. And I put myself through the negotiation about trying to get this bike. As I say, I wasn't really intending to pay much more than £100 for the bike. He wanted 110 Now, 
as you know, negotiating is all about trying to get as much information from the uh, from the other side so that you can understand why they're what the reasons are that they are wanting uh, to sell the property and um, he let slip that he had paid £198 for the bike two years ago um, and that really sort of steel or, or gave me a bit of what's the word um, resolve uh, to actually go and make sure that I didn't pay any more than £100 because I thought you know what if he's had two years use of the bike then you know for him to get a hundred quid for the for the bike is probably no bad deal for him and you know a reasonable deal for me but you know what had he said that he paid 400 pounds for for the bike then i guess i would have said you know what i'll just give him that the, the extra 10 pounds um so it's all about negotiation as i keep banging on about negotiation it's all about trying to get as much information out of the person that you're negotiating with so you can understand why and what the reasons are that they are selling their bike. As I said, negotiation it was quite a sort of interesting um, look at uh, negotiating out with the normal sphere that I've got, which is obviously negotiating uh, buying properties for clients. And if you're at all interested in negotiation uh, and what it takes and what's involved in it, then do log on and uh, go on to the website. As I said, that there is the good, the bad and the ugly of negotiating. And we've done a number of blogs there on the, on the, the website for the podcast. This week's episode, I said that we'd reached the application stage for the mortgage side of things, and that's what we're going to talk about now. Right, we've reached the application stage, haven't we, in connection with the mortgage process. We've covered affordability and we've covered the decision in principle. What you need to know is that when you're applying, most of the people that we see, once we've got through the decision in principle, most of the people that we see will end up getting a loan, okay? So we've got a really high percentage that as long as you get through the decision in principle side of things, then, you know, as long as you've been telling us the truth and you're absolutely transparent, you play by the rules and you've got all the documentation in place, then very rarely are you not going to get a mortgage. So that's the good side of things. Now, sometimes the downside is that when you come to see a mortgage broker about getting a mortgage, unless it's a remortgage, uh, then you can be under a bit of time pressure. What will happen is that you will go to the broker on the basis that you have been successful in buying a property, you'll have the decision in principle, and you've probably given yourself six to eight weeks from the placing of the offer to the date of entry. And six to eight weeks, that should be enough time easily, as long as you're organised, easily 
to get that mortgage in place. Now your solicitor will probably have put the offer in and that offer will be conditional upon you getting a mortgage. So what that means is that as long as you do not conclude the missives, that's to say uh, conclude the contract to buy the property, then you will not be bound in any way to buying the property. And any solicitor worth their salt will be advising their client that if they don't have the money available and it is not a pure cash purchase, then they should be making the offer conditional upon the mortgage. And you will probably get a window of between two or three weeks before the seller starts mumping their gums and wanting to put some pressure on you to conclude missives. And that's where your solicitor will earn their corn, their stripes. The decent solicitor should be able to put up um, a decent enough smokescreen uh, to ensure that you have sufficient time to organise everything and get your mortgage in, in place. But ultimately, the seller will continue to put pressure on your solicitor. And so it's therefore really important that you don't delay in seeing your broker and making sure that you start the process of getting your mortgage in place. One thing I probably should say at this point is that you have to be absolutely transparent. I am the agent of the lender. And what that means is that anything that you tell me as a client, I will have to put down on the application form. So just be aware of that, because if something, if you come across something and you tell me what that is, and you obviously you need to, um, then there may be a, a, a point where I've got to say, you know what, I can't continue to, to act for you because what you're saying to me there means that the lender just won't lend. I've had a couple of circumstances recently where people have approached me saying that they're wanting to get a mortgage and then tell me that they've decided to jack in their job. That's to say, trying to get a mortgage after they've left their employment. And with the greatest respect, no lender is going to be interested in lending you money. Even if you've got a whole shed load of um, redundancy payment, no lender is going to be sensible enough to lend you money in those circumstances. Another incident that we had recently was when we had a, a couple of clients, in fact, had advised me that they were renting a property out to a family member. And those of you who don't know, it's actually quite difficult to get a buy-to-let mortgage where you're renting the property to a family member. For some reason, the lenders just aren't keen on doing that. There are probably only two or three lenders in Scotland who are prepared to look at that. So you really are reducing the pool of lenders that will allow, that will give you a mortgage um, if that is what you are doing. 
So again, anything that you tell me, I end up having to, to tell the lenders. So listen, let's crack ahead with what's actually required when we're going to get your application through. First things first, it's an online application. Very rarely these days is it actually a paper-based written application. So everything's pretty much done online. All the documentation that you give me is downloaded and uh, is processed by the lender once they've received the download from us. So documentation is a huge part of the application process. What we need from you is your address ID, your photo ID. If you're employed, we need pay slips. We need a P60. If you are self-employed, then we'll be looking at an SA302. SA302s, for those of you who don't know, are an indication as to how much income you have made which is going to be taxable and that is something that obviously if you're self-employed the banks take a great deal of interest in. We want to see your bank statement. Generally speaking the lender will want to see three months bank statements from you and that really is to make sure that everything that you have said in the application is backed up by a record, a three-month record, as to how you spend your money. And they will probably, banks will probably look and take a great deal of interest in how that account has been conducted. Because if they see you living high in the hog and constantly at the end of the month going into overdraft, that's going to bring up certain reg flags with certain lenders. So be aware that if you're going to start looking at getting a new mortgage, whether that be remortgaging or whether that be getting a new mortgage for a purchase, think carefully for a period of three months as to how you have conducted your affairs because they'll look at that bank statement and that is a snapshot as to how the bank perceive you as far as a risk is concerned. Next thing they want to see is if you own a property, they'll want to see a redemption statement. And if you're going down the buy to let route, then they'll want rental details, how much money you're making as far as rent is concerned, who you're renting the property to, and if you ticked all the boxes with regards to leases and AT5 forms. So those are the five main aspects as far as documents are concerned. Once you've put that all together and you've signed off on the application, then it all goes off to the lenders and then you start the underwriting process. But before we start talking about the underwriting process, let's talk a little bit about the survey side of things. Now, most of the time you will have looked to, we're talking here initially, let me say, about the buying process. So, you will have looked at the home report which was prepared by the sellers and the bank will be prepared to look at that as long as that surveyor is on the panel of the bank. That's most important and I'll just repeat that. So the surveyor has to be on the panel of the bank 
because if the surveyor is not on the panel of the bank, then the bank will not accept that and you'll end up having to stump up the cost of a survey. Now, a lot of lenders these days will offer a free survey and therefore it doesn't really matter as to where the survey of the surveyor's firm has come from. But a word of warning in that it's sometimes better just to get the home report over to the bank if you're happy with the value on that. Because what you don't want to do is to go to another surveyor, a completely independent surveyor, who then goes out to the property and downvalues that. That happens a great number of times. And one of the reasons why it probably happens is because it's possible that that surveyor who had been doing the, the, the survey, the home report for the seller, has possibly been standing on his tiptoes as far as evaluation is concerned. An independent surveyor will not see it like that. And he will just give you a complete low-ball bricks and mortar valuation. So in many respects, as long as the home report is within three months, you're better staying with the home report that you've got. The bank, as I said, um, they will do their own survey if the surveyor is not on the panel or they'll have to do the survey in the event that the survey is three months old or older than three months. And they'll, they'll probably do um, uh, what used to be called a, a Scheme 1 survey. Uh, it'll be done pretty quickly. Most of the, the clients that I speak to who have had uh, a surveyor come into their property to carry out a survey for the bank, it is done very, very quickly. I mean, it's almost like, it's almost like a cursory glance at the property. Um, they'll, they'll go into the property and, as I say, they'll probably just carry out what used to be called a Scheme 1 survey and they'll go back and then they'll go and crunch the numbers as far as the valuation is concerned. So that's the survey side of things. Now, you don't know when the survey is going to be carried out by the lenders. You would have thought that the lenders wouldn't want to, to waste any money in the event that your mortgage application was a bit ropey, a bit dicey. Um, one would have thought that they would wait just to make sure that everything was absolutely A-OK -okay with your application before spending money on a survey, but it doesn't always work like that. Some lenders will do the survey at the front end, some will do the survey at the back end of the whole mortgage process. Once the survey has been carried out, or the, once the, 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 the survey part has been dealt with, then it will either go to underwriting or underwriting has already been done. And underwriting is the bank carrying out their checks and balances. It's where, if it's going to get kicked into touch, that's where it'll get kicked into touch. 
And some lenders to deal with are great because you can actually have a sensible conversation with the underwriters. And others, you just cannot get through and speak to the underwriters. And if you've got a case which needs some explanation, then in some respects you're better going with a lender who has an underwriting process that is more flexible. And in the brokering world, with the greatest respect, you know, you can get and do your mortgage application yourself. If you've got a job that has a PAYE salary, you've got a pretty straightforward credit file and you're wanting, I don't know, a two-year fixed rate. It's not the hardest job for you to get your own mortgage, okay? The broker's job really is to help those who maybe haven't been through the process before or to help those that with the greatest will in the world, don't know where to start. So if they're a sole trader or a company director or a partnership, something that's a little bit out of kilter, out of whack, a little bit strange, then that's where the broker comes in. And that's why you should go to a broker because we'll do all of the heavy lifting as far as talking to the underwriter is concerned, organising the documentation, making sure that we're giving you the best possible chance of getting that mortgage. Now, the underwriter's job is to, to almost pick holes in your application, really drill down and, and just try and see behind the information and sometimes they'll come back and, and they'll ask for further documentation, further proof. And what I wanted to do was just sort of go through five examples where, you know, we can come a cropper as far as the underwriting process is concerned. So let's talk about the employment side of things um, and the pay side of things. You've got to watch as far as the pay is concerned, what deductions are coming out of your salary. OK, that's important. Sometimes the, there are a lot of deductions that come out of your salary and the lenders will look and take that into account. We've had a couple of cases recently where the lenders have been scrupulous as far as looking at accountant certificates. So this is where you've got yourself employed, your your um, your companies that maybe only been trading a year or two years um, or the accounts aren't quite up to date. A lot of the times the lenders will look at accountant certificates. So you need to make sure that your accountant's on board and he's up to speed with what you're trying to do. So if you are somebody who is looking to get a mortgage and you are a company director, then make sure and speak to your accountant and make sure that they're aware of what information we are going to be needing to get 
to allow the mortgage process to move forward. Next is undisclosed credit. These days now, what we're demanding from clients is to see their Experian report or their Equifax report. It's absolutely vital that we see sight of these. So much um, time can be saved with looking at that rather than having a potentially embarrassing conversation with a client as to what they spend their money on. Nobody likes to have their finances examined, um, let alone a mortgage advisor. Um, there is some... Uh, credit is one of these things that for, for a lot of people, um, they don't like... They're quite happy in demonstrating that they've got the flash car um, and they've got the, the nice house and etc, etc. Et um, and they don't really want to see somebody scraping back or, or opening the curtains and actually saying, you know what, it's all fur coat and no knickers. But the easiest thing to do is just get the credit report so we don't have that, don't need to have that conversation. There can be sometimes a difference between Equifax and Experian. We had one case recently where uh, the Experian report was absolutely clean as a whistle and it failed uh, because there had been a commitment that had been missed or apparently had been missed from one of the uh, mobile phone providers. And in fact, it was Vodafone who had screwed up and it was shown on Equifax as uh, the fact that the person had missed two or three payments. Now, it transpired that back in the early 2000s, Vodafone had changed their computer system and that computer system had actually created a number of dummy accounts. And those dummy accounts were never uh, given out to the... Uh, the account holders and those account holders never naturally knew that the accounts existed and never got any details of those accounts but accounts were created and uh, monies were then uh, were shown to be uh, credited to that account leaving a debit and a lot of uh, clients of ours have, have suffered from that fact I know two at least who have had that. So we've ended up having to go through the rigmarole of getting Vodafone to issue a letter which then clarifies the situation. So if that's undisclosed credit, most important, and that's one of the big, big uh, issues that lenders have, uh, is that you will put the application in and you will put in what you believe is what the credit situation is because that's what's been told by your client only for the lenders to come away with undisclosed credit i.e credit that your client has not told you about so what we do is we just get the credit report next one is about valuations and rentals the next year i think is going to be a big big issue for the buy to let community We've had the tax issues, we've had the stamp duty issues. This coming year, 2017, we're going to have a big problem, I think, with regards to stress tests. Stress tests is all about you having to have sufficient rental income coming in 
in order to afford the, the mortgage and the stress tests are being ramped up so that I wouldn't be surprised that if by the end of the year um, it was very, very difficult to actually get a 75% loan to value. So rentals, I think, is a big issue. We've had a number of cases recently where um, loans have been kicked into touch because we had expected the rental income to be X only for the surveyor to demonstrate on his survey report that it is Y and Y being lower than the uh, rental amount that we were uh, thinking that we would get left us failing the stress test. And ultimately, if there's not enough rental coming in, or perceived rental coming in, then you're going to struggle as far as a stress test is concerned. So that's something that we need to, to look at. Moving on to identification, we've had some problems in the past with regards to married names. For goodness sake, if you've got married, make sure that before you get your mortgage application through, make sure that you've got all your documentation in, in line. Make sure that your driving license shows your current property. Make sure that your driving license and your passport has your new married name in it and also dig out the, the marriage lines as well because we want to see sight of those. A number of issues last year where we had clients who had been married for a couple of years, hadn't changed their documentation and in the end we ended up having to get them to either get a new uh, passport, which I think I'm, I'm applying for my passport again when the 10 years is up. I think it's about 80 or 90 pounds, I think now. It's, it's getting more and more expensive and there's a delay in doing that. And then finally, we're on to talking about income again. Where we're diving into getting a mortgage for a client and that client is going into, uh, uh, is borrowing into retirement age, then we need to make sure that all the pension documents are available. So if you are of a certain age and you are likely to go into retirement having not paid off your mortgage, then the lenders these days are not going to be too much interested in what you're earning at the moment, but more interested in whether or not you can actually afford the mortgage moving forward into retirement. So what I would say to you is as far as the documentation is concerned, and we've fallen down here a couple of times, is making sure that this, there is sufficient pensionable income available to make the affordability work. So those are five issues that we have sort of faced over the last year from the underwriters. But bottom line is that if you're transparent, you play by the rules, and you've got all the documents, okay, then you should get your mortgage through. And not only should you get your mortgage through, you should get your mortgage through pretty quickly. You know, it's rare that if you're transparent, you play by the rules and you've got all the documentation, then we know what the issues are. If you're transparent and you tell us the problems that you've got, 
ultimately they're going to come out. You can't sweep these things under the carpet. The underwriters, that's their job. Their job is to pick holes in your application. So if you think that you're going to be able to hide this, that and the next thing, then you know, you've, got, you've got another thing coming. Open, transparency, tell us what the issues are and we can deal with them. And ultimately, listen, they're going to get found out, so you might as well know now rather than spinning a line to the seller. Oh, the mortgage is fine, there won't be a problem, when deep down you know that there is this horror story that's about to happen because you've not told the broker. So transparency, play by the rules and have all the documents in place. That is the takeaway. That is what you need to do in order to get your application from decision and principle right through in the space of two or three weeks, right through to getting your mortgage offer in place. And once you've got your mortgage offer in place, then it's tally-ho and you're off to get your contract and missives concluded and you can get the keys. And that's it. Okay, that was the application stage. What we're going to do in the coming weeks is start to drill down and look at specific topics within getting a mortgage. So we're going to start drilling down and looking at things like buy-to-lets, those that are looking, uh, they're finding maybe a wee bit difficult to get a mortgage, likes of your directors, your um, your one-man bands, and first-time buyers, etc. So we're going to sort of drill down and look at the intricacies and the difficulties that likes of specific people have when they're looking for a mortgage. So, so that's what's going to be happening in the coming weeks. I'm just going to toddle off now and prepare a, an interview with Ian McCall. Ian McCall is the manager of Air United and he is uh, has been kind enough to say that he's going to come on to the podcast. Interestingly, we're going to be doing the interview at a Hogmanay party that I'm going to tomorrow evening. Uh, now, I know the Honest Men, Air United, are playing on Saturday afternoon down at Queen of the South, so it'll be, um, hopefully he'll get back okay and uh, the pair of us aren't too blathered when uh, we start talking on the podcast for the interview next week. I talked about resolutions, didn't I, and what my aims were going to be at the start of the podcast. And really, this year, what I'm wanting to try and do is to increase subscribers to not only the podcast, but also to the blog. And I've put a a pretty easy sign-up page on the blog and also onto the website. So please, if you're at all interested in signing up to get a blog, and that'll come to you on a weekly basis. The blogs, I'm trying to do a blog, two blogs a week, so you'll get those. And as I say, if you've got any interest in property, buying, selling, renting, or investing, then it would be a great idea for you just to subscribe. I'm trying to get, as I say, the subscribers up for that and also the subscribers up for the podcast. 
How do you subscribe for the podcast? Well, there's three main methods, I guess. You're looking at iTunes, go on to iTunes, and if you've got an account with iTunes, then you can sign up and subscribe there. Stitcher, again, pretty much like iTunes. You can go along there and subscribe through that medium. And SoundCloud, SoundCloud is the host where I uh, put all of the podcasts and you can go along there and you can follow me on SoundCloud and that means that every time that I drop a podcast into SoundCloud then you'll get a copy of that sent over to you. So as I say I'm off to prepare my interview with Ian and we'll catch you up next week and hopefully we'll have the interview with Ian McCall in the can. It's Jonathan Williams You have been listening to the Bricks and Mortar podcast. As ever, it's just a sideways look at property. 